Jesus loved to tell stories, right? And stories are, there's something about a story. I mean, it, it, it cuts us into places where if somebody just lectures me, I just don't hear it the same way. You ever notice that? You know, the punchline in any, in any storyline can kind of catch you and it can twist your heart and it can twist your mind and help you to see things from an angle you never would have. A good book can do this and a good piece of literature, a good poem and a good song even uh, can, can, can do that. Well, Jesus tells a masterful story in Luke chapter 10 and he tells it to a guy who He's in an interesting place. He has a question for Jesus, and Jesus and he are going back and forth, and he decides that he's going to communicate to this man by a story. So I'm going to begin reading. This is Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, a couple things about this. A lawyer is not like a lawyer in our day. You know, a lawyer in our day is somebody who prosecutes or uh, defends or is involved in law, right? And law is, is it's separate from this thing we call the church. Over here we have the church and we're in one of those. And we have, I guess, guidelines. We have a constitution as a church. But we're not a big rule organization. But over there, the law is, it's tight. There's lots of little details. There's lots of stuff. And to pass the bar exam in our country is pretty, it's pretty something, you know. You gotta be really smart. Well, in Jesus' day, this lawyer, he had the bar exam passed, but it was actually in kind of a religious law, not just a civil law. So he would have known all about the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Some scholars think these people, like this man, would have memorized whole books of the Bible. Can you imagine having Deuteronomy memorized? I can't. Personally, I just can't imagine that. But he may have, and he had all these details floating around in his brain that you and I would find absolutely amazing. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I've got all these details in my brain, but tell me, tell me about this thing that I'm missing. Okay? He says, I have something missing. Now, I've felt this way about my faith. I don't know if you have, but I've thought, you know, is this all there is, God? I believe, I believe, I can, I can look at the Apostles' Creed and all the lines on it and say, yes, Lord, I agree with every line. I agree with the tenets of the faith, the big stuff, you know, resurrection. Did it actually happen? Yes, I believe that stuff. But, but, do I have it in my heart and is it affecting me in such a way that I'm qualitatively different? That's what that word eternal life means. He, this guy asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And what he doesn't necessarily mean is that what am I going to do to live forever? He means more than that. What am I going to do to experience the fullness of what God created me for? You know, when people come to church, I have a suspicion. It's not that they come to church very often just because they're looking for a church that's great. They're looking for something that affects their life and changes them. We want to be different than we are. And as often as I get in a counseling session and I listen to somebody talk, that's what I hear more often than any other line. Lord, I want to be different. How is this church going to affect me? How is God going to change my life? And frankly, sometimes that's something that's not just real easy and simple. It takes long-term discipline and commitment and all this sort of stuff. And this guy comes to Jesus and says, real simply, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus doesn't just go there right away. And I love this about you. He's a patient storyteller. He unravels the thread, so to speak, with this guy. And he says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The law is the first five books of the Bible, especially Leviticus and Deuteronomy are law books. What is written in the law and how do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Great line. 
No problem. He's got that box checked in his mind. He's a religious guy. He's got more of the Bible memorized than anybody in this room. We could guarantee that. And he understands that loving God is a religious category. And he is good at loving God in his terms. And he says, okay, this is the first commandment. Frankly, this is the most famous of God's commands in the Old Testament. All the laws of the Old Testament, there's hundreds of them, they fit under two great commands. And this guy's going to go right there. Two great commands. The first one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It comes from Deuteronomy 6. And it was called the Hebrew Shema. It means to listen. Because Deuteronomy 6, 4 begins with, Hear, O Israel, or listen, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And he's quoting that line, and he's saying, this is the great law. And then there's another one. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Leviticus 19. Two laws. And he says, these are the big two. And he says, this is how I read the law, that I have to love God with everything about me, heart, soul, and strength. That means what's inside in the deep parts of me, my mind, my soul, and then my, my hands, my strength, my, my physical being, my time, my resources. I love God with all of that stuff, and I love my neighbor as myself. Well, Jesus looks at that, and he says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. No problem. Free pass. There you go. This man has a deep heart question, right? He's lacking eternal life. He's lacking something in here. And he knows that life should be more than he's experiencing so far. And he's going, God, provide for me something more. And Jesus says, okay, how do you read the law? And he goes into that law and he says, okay, fine. You've got the lines drawn up in the right places. All you got to do is love God. And all you got to do is love people. If you took the Ten Commandments and you broke them down, there's ten of them, right? The first four are really about loving God, and the last six are actually about loving people. And if you can do those things, then according to Jesus, you got it. You're fine. So what's the problem? This could be the shortest sermon of our year, right? We just walk out of here. Everybody love God and everybody love each other, and we're going to be all good. What's the matter with that? But the lawyer thinks there's something wrong with it, actually. He, he, Jesus is tweezing, teasing this thread and kind of pulling on this whole thing. And, and, and the man kind of comes undone, and he, he goes one step further, and he asks Jesus a question. He says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Why that question? The big job is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. The second biggest job is to love your neighbor as yourself. And then here's the qualifier. Who's in my neighborhood? That word in the ancient language means more than neighbor. It means friend. It means companion. It means the people you walk through life with. So in other words, this guy now wants to draw a legal line around who's in and who's out. We're in this series called The Ins and Outs of Community. And we want to hear who's in and who's out. Because I don't want to have to love everybody. Can you imagine how much work that would be to actually love everybody as I love myself? I'm pretty good. I know about me. And I'm a, I am like me. And then if I got to love, okay, up here, these people in the second row, no problem. The third row, all right, we'll make it. Fourth row, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Fifth row, you're out. Sixth row, forget you. You know, I mean, because we got, we got a world filled with seven billion people. We can reach most of them by email. You know, I mean, how, how are we gonna, how are we gonna figure out who's in and who's out? This guy's got a great question. It's a legal question. It's, it's something more too. It's a, it's a loophole question, right? I want to get off the hook says this guy. I want to know that I'm as good as I can be, and I just want to know that I don't, I don't need anything more. This eternal life thing, 
Jesus, if you just tell me I've got it, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to walk out of here and say, good, I love God, and I love the people who are closest to me, and I'm not going to worry about all the rest. There's a world out there. They, they can handle themselves. You know, this question actually betrays this man in a way he doesn't see coming. But Jesus reads right through him. The text doesn't tell us this, but he does. You know he does. And that's that if you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, you love the things that God loves. And God says he loves people. And they're not just the people who are really close and related to me or my closest friends. He loves people all over the place, right? And when you don't love, and when you start asking questions like this guy, Where's the loopholes? I don't really have to love so-and-so. They live life the wrong way. When you start asking questions like that, you know you're not really loving God all the way. His heart isn't all the way in in this story. And Jesus can see that. But, you know, if you just indict somebody like that, if you just nail them to the wall and say, you're not a good Christian or a good Jew because you don't love people the way God called you to, well, then he would have walked away and said, well, there's another all messed up teacher, I'll just walk away. But instead, Jesus does something else. And it's brilliant what he does. It's so brilliant that I think of all the parables, this might be the most well-known parable. It's the one we think of when we think of Jesus telling stories. Somebody told me after the first service that, you know, there's a Samaritan in this story. He said, you know, all my life I've thought Samaritans were good things because I always hear this story and Samaritans look really good. If you actually were in Jesus' day, when we get to that portion of the story, Samaritans were thought of as really, really bad. And there was good reason for that, actually. So let's read what Jesus says. He replies to the man in a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 1,800 feet drop in topography. It's going up and down. This this is a mountainous terrain, and you're going through rock-strewn valleys, and there's places for people to hide. I've driven this road, and you can picture where these robbers might have stood in in Jesus' mind as he tells this story, and it kind of makes sense for the time. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite is kind of like a lawyer. It's about the same thing. So the priest and the Levite, the religious characters, they're on their way, and Jericho was filled with priests during Jesus' day, and they had to come to Jerusalem to to be a part of the temple worship and all this stuff. So the back and forth traffic, it's a pretty normal story. You know, there's jokes. The other day I was in the backyard um, shoveling snow, of course. I was shoveling off our back walk, and my neighbor was behind me. And he, and, he, and he started talking about church. People, when they see me, they start talking about church. I don't know why. I wish they wouldn't sometimes. But he said, you know, I'm Lutheran. He tells me I'm a member of so-and-so Lutheran church. I said, okay, good. And we, I had already been through some of the religious conversation with his wife. His wife, is, his, her mother was Jewish, and her father was Catholic and uh, is Catholic, and and he, we started to kind of laugh between us because I said, it's like you're a joke. I mean, the two of you walk into a bar, and you got a Lutheran and a Catholic and a Jew walking into a bar. What's the punchline? You know, and he's a really good guy. He just started laughing. We kind of cracked up together. Well, Jesus is telling a story like that, right? A priest and a scribe, and who's the third one? A Samaritan went to Jericho. That's how the joke goes. And they all saw a guy sitting on the side of the road, and he was bleeding, and he might have been dead. Maybe they couldn't even tell if he was dead. He was so comatose and unconscious. And who stops to help, you know? Who stops to help? It's a cross between the possum joke and the three people walking into the bar joke. 
Who stops to help? And then we get to the Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. A few years before this, the Samaritans had gotten kicked out of the temple for good. The Jews wouldn't even allow them in the part of Jerusalem where worship took place. And the reason why is because they showed up at one of the great feasts, the worship worship calendar dates in Jewish uh, tradition. They showed up at one of those and there was a group of Samaritans that brought dead bodies, burned up, and they spread the powder all over the place, knowing that Jews couldn't handle and couldn't worship in the midst of dead bodies. Neither could we, frankly. We don't have all their rules. But when you touched a dead body in that day, you had to go another week without being a part of worship. And so the whole temple was desecrated, and all the Jews fled, and it was a big hubbub. They had to clean up the temple. It was a mess, and they banned Samaritans forever from the Temple Mount after this story. So... You know, and, and probably the Samaritans, when they did that, we don't know, but they were probably responding to some horrible thing that the Jews had done to them. There was this vitriolic, nasty, go-back-and-forth vengeance thing going on between the Samaritans and the Jews, and everybody knew it. You couldn't miss this point. And so when Jesus enters this Samaritan into the story, and he thinks of all the people groups, and there's all of these different types of people groups in Jesus' day, he could have picked this group or that group or any one of them, but he picks the worst. Of course, right? And he says there was a Samaritan coming along the way. And then he says this, and this man had compassion. What's the lawyer doing? He's drawing rules so that in good lazy fashion, frankly, a lot like I would do, he's, he's, he's kind of cutting out people that he doesn't have to have compassion on. And he's drawing lines around where he doesn't have to love. Right? And Jesus tells this story and he gets to the Samaritan and it's not as though the Samaritan just, you know, does the right thing. He feels something deep within him. Something happens in here, this part of his body, that says, I've got to help this person. And the, the, the priest and the scribe, they just pass on by. But who's the neighbor is the question. And we're seeing these three people and they all kind of fit into the question as possible answers. Is the priest a neighbor? Well, no, that doesn't look too neighborly. Is, is, the, is the scribe a neighbor? No. Well, what about the Samaritans? Samaritans are never, ever, ever neighbors. Never. We'll keep going with that point in a little bit. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Notice the lawyer's response. He said, the one who showed him mercy. You know what a pronoun is? A pronoun is something that takes the place of a noun. And when you say the one, that's a pronoun. And it takes the place of an important word. What's that word? Samaritan. This lawyer can't even say that word. Do you hear that? The hate is deeply within his heart. He says, Jesus, I'm not going to say Samaritan. It's the one who showed him mercy. Okay, Jesus, I get the point, right? It's the one who shows him compassion. It's the one who cares. On one hand, we have a lawyer who's trying to justify himself and draw up rules so we can figure out how he's into the kingdom of heaven, how he's a part of the life of God with as minimal amount of effort as possible. That's what the lawyer is trying. On the other hand, we have a Samaritan who is not a part of the kingdom of heaven, not a part of God's plan at all, according to the Jews. He's somebody who's out. He's the ins and outs of community. He's not in. He is 
way out there. And yet he shows up on the inside with his heart still intact. And Jesus said to him, well, then you go and do likewise. We got two great rules. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the man wants to figure out how to make those rules work for him with the most efficiency, without any change, without any transformation. And then Jesus says, listen, it's going to take this. It's going to take compassion. And you add that on to the rules and you got something. But without that compassion, what is there? It's really interesting what this word means. I'll give you a definition and then we'll talk about it. The instant response of our being to the needs of others. Definition of compassion. The word for compassion in the ancient Greek is phlagzizomai. You don't want to say that with me, right? But it actually sounds like something going down your digestive tract. And, you know, later on in the day, you've eaten something a little bit. Maybe you've gone to Taco Bell. And you have something, and you're sitting in a meeting, and you hear a noise. And the people around you hear that noise, too. You've been there, right? Come on, let's be honest. And and somebody will say, is that you? (laughs) That's what that word literally means. That's true. That's what it means. It means something is moving in your digestive tract, and it tends to mean lower in the digestive tract, not higher. I don't want to go into great detail here, okay? But that's what the word for compassion is in the Greek language. That's an interesting language. You know why? Because when this guy goes by this broken person, something happens down here. I've got to do something. Something visceral is moving, something deep within his being. It's not as though he just says, oh, my rules mean that I got... Some people do this compassion thing in the rules. They don't actually get out there with their heart. They actually say, well, my rules are that I got to help people in need. I saw a lady get in an accident over by the Limerick Generating Station two weeks ago. I stopped my car. It wasn't a great act of love. It was just, are you okay, ma'am? Do you have AAA? Are you okay? You're good? No problem. That's a rule for me. That's not a big act of heart. But this this story tells us something more about this man. He actually, his guts churned about this situation. And his heart went out to this man. And he invested a couple of days' wages. And he took of his time. And he could have been accused of killing this man or damaging him because he was a Samaritan. And everybody suspected Samaritans. And he's in Jewish territory where everybody would have thought bad of him. But he decides to put his legacy on the line and decide to take this man and put him on his donkey and carry him to the inn. Something deep within him moved. And Jesus wants us to hear this word and realize that the difference between a rule-following life of religiosity and a heart-filled life of love, is it's, it's the difference between in and out with God. It's whether we're in God's community and whether we're acting like we're in, God, in God's community that is defined by this point. What an interesting thought, right? What an interesting thought. The the Bible goes into great detail about this word, but what's interesting is it's never used of just every other person. Peter is never said to be compassionate. Not John, not Paul, none of the great heroes of the New Testament, only Jesus. Besides the Samaritan, only Jesus is ever said to have this compassion. And it tells us that when Jesus is traveling around, he gets to Jerusalem and he sees all the brokenness of their empty religion and he says, I have compassion on them. 
He's sitting on a hillside in northern Galilee and he is looking at 5,000 people who are going without food. And this word is used. It says his heart went out to them. His, his stomach churned. He had something going on viscerally inside him that said, I love those people. And then he goes to the disciples and he says, well, you feed them. And they say, what? Jesus, come on. We have like a few fish and loaves and that's it. And Jesus says, you can do it. And then he starts to break the fish and the loaves and his compassion feeds 5,000 people sitting right there because Jesus loves. You know, there's something about this word. I think it means, as I've looked across the whole Bible, it means your heart is available. It means that it's not covered up. We're so filled with social rules. We don't maybe have the rules that they have, but we have rules, right? We know who we need to talk to and who not to. We know who's in and who's out. We know the words that should not be said in certain settings. We have all these rules, and they are broken all the time. We all have a brother-in-law who breaks our rules. I'm convinced everybody in this world has a brother-in-law who breaks their rules. I won't tell you which one of mine it is, but I have brother-in-laws who break rules. You do too. You have family members who don't live by the guidelines that you think are right. And those things kind of pummel our hearts and we kind of shut down. There's an interesting verse, I won't read it for you, but it's in Ephesians 1. Paul prays this prayer for the Ephesian church and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened or enlightened. What a thought. Did you know that the eyes of your heart can be closed? You can become a shell of the being you were intended to be. You can shut down to those around you and be unresponsive and not be able to actually communicate your heart and what your life is all about to them. There are people who might wish to be connected to you that can't because you have shut down heart syndrome. And this word says that Jesus' heart was opened and enlightened and ready at any moment for whoever came along the way who God had put into his life. The lawyer wanted to shut down. That's what he wanted. He wanted justification for letting parts of his life say, you know what, I'm going to leave those people out and I'm just going to shut down and build some walls over here. I can only love so much. I know my bounds and I can't go beyond those boundaries. And if I go beyond them, who knows what might happen? And Jesus says, I don't know either, but I do know that you have to have your heart at the surface of your life so it can respond to people. And Paul prays, may the eyes of your heart be opened. The great line that the lawyer himself quotes his hero Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. What does it mean to love? It means to listen, to be connected to. When someone speaks, you want to hear them. There are people who ring your cell phone and you say, well, that's Oklahoma. I don't know anybody in Oklahoma. I don't think I'll take that call. Beep. Oh, that's my, I think I'll take that call. We have different responses to different people, right? Be honest. And whatever the telemarketers are, leave them out of the conversation. But you have people who you want to respond to. And when you see that call, you say, I can't wait to talk to that person. I can't wait to hear what they think about this situation I'm in. I can't wait to give back and forth. And then we have people that aren't a part of that. What if we had hearts that were so strengthened and so enlightened and so ready that whenever we came across somebody who was in need, whatever the need, we could give of ourselves in at least a modicum of a way at least a minimum, at least something of ourselves goes out to that person. We say, yes, I see you. You are valuable. You know, it starts not with loving people. It starts with loving God. The Bible tells us some things about God, and we're going to talk about three layers of impact that this story, I think, 
doesn't impact directly, but across the scriptures we see connections where what happens with compassion and having an open heart can affect different parts of our lives. And it starts with God, because God is a God of compassion. Very early in the Bible, there's a conversation that gets picked up. It's in the second book of the Bible we read this. But this is the most quoted line, maybe in the whole Bible. And it's literally God describing himself. These are, this is God getting a shot at, not, not talking through some psalmist or talking through some prophet. Instead, he says directly, this is who I am. And he's talking to Moses. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful, and that's the word in the Old Testament for compassion, and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You know, some of us, we tend to think of God, if he could define himself, he's angry and he's just and he's righteous. Those words would come out first, right? Where he's just kind of schmarmy love, but but God says something different. He says, "I am compassionate and gracious. I like people, and I want them to do well. I am slow to anger. I'm abounding in a loving kindness that reaches from generation to generation to generation to generation." When you start to talk to someone like this, they change you. I remember thinking when I was a kid that my parents were growing more and more like each other. It was not a trend I enjoyed. I won't go into detail there, but, you know, people, the longer they stay married, the more connected they get and the more they look like each other. The more they start to act like each other. There's things about us that we, who we hang out with, it changes who we are. It's very important that we be changed by the people around us. But then it's also really important that we hang out with the right sort of people, right? The Bible tells us when you hang out with God and when you become somebody who is first compassionate, or at least maybe we want to use the word listening, somebody who can respond to God, when we develop the capability of listening to God in our lives, when we can hear his heart and feel what he feels for people around us, when that happens, we are transformed. We are changed. It does not happen easily or quickly. Now, here's a confession. I don't like this. I don't at all. Shelby had a breakfast yesterday morning at 6.15. We both got up early. I said, I got a couple hours to myself, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read my Bible because that's what I do. I can check the box, and it's one of my legal lines. I'm supposed to read the Bible. That's what pastors do. It should be what Christians do. And it is a good line. You should read the Bible. I joked with Josh Hostetter, our, our discipleship pastor. I said, we're not going to expect much out of you today when he got here this morning. He said, what do you mean? I said, I, just, I think you're going to be on low ebb. And he looked at me strangely. I said, I found your Bible. He was here for a prayer meeting last night. I said, I found your Bible sitting in the foyer. I know you're not ready to go. You just, you left it behind. And he kind of cracked up. You know, he laughed and moved on. But I thought, I'm going to get up and I'm going to read the word and I'm going to get charged up. I read a couple chapters and I said, I'm good. But I looked inside my soul for just a second and it wasn't good. I'm a person who wakes up with a frozen heart. You know, Paul says that we should have opened eyes on our heart, observing eyes, eyes that are looking for chances to serve. Well, I have a heart that does the opposite. It wants to go inward, and it begs my kids to sleep in till 10 o'clock and my wife to leave me alone forever, you know. And I just, please, I'm just grumpy in here. Tony Campalo, the sociologist from Eastern University, was here a couple years ago, and I heard him, and he just seemed more alive than most people I know. He was really generous, and we had dinner before, and he was a great guy, just really enjoyed him. He offended everybody. He's very provocative. And, and as he talked, he said, he had all these lines he said, but one of the lines he said that caught my attention, he said, it takes me 20 minutes in the morning to wake up my soul to God. 20 minutes of just looking upward because it just can't be done quickly. 
I had to pull up a YouTube clip of some worship artist who I really appreciate, listen to him crone on about the fact that I need to hear truth and here's my heart, oh God. And, I'm, and, you know, and I started to feel my heart melt. But it took an hour. It didn't take 20 minutes. It took an hour for me to get this thing melted within me. You know, I don't have the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I don't have those things naturally. And I have them less with my kids maybe than with anybody. And when if I'm not thawed out on the inside, and if the eyes of my heart are shut down, then I don't have this thing inside of my tummy that moves when people need me. I say, well, yeah, I can pastor you. I'll care for you. I'll, yeah, we'll do this. But, but it really, am I giving of myself? No, I don't want to. And when we awaken to God, he transforms this part. The, the Lord's Prayer tells us that he has a power that is beyond our lives. We can't do this on our own. We need a strength that comes from beyond. And so we have to hang out with a God who's different than us. And we have to listen and we have to join his heart and be transformed by what is moving inside of him. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. If you think this comes easily... If you don't prepare to be here on Sunday mornings or you don't prepare for your daily life by somehow getting your heart changed, your heart is growing harder. You can get calluses on a spiritual heart. You can. You do. It gets, it gets absolutely unresponsive. We need to move on because we're short on time. It's easy to think of the Good Samaritan and think about poverty-stricken people and broken people, but I have a suspicion that the rest of the Bible included, we're supposed to think about our own family first. Compassion in our families requires listening to the heart cry of those closest to us. As often as I do marriage counseling and as often as I think about my own marriage, this is the most important passage of Scripture for me. It says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What Paul's writing in this passage says, if you're married... That person needs you to absolutely have a compassionate listening ear to what's going on in their life. You don't want to just listen to their words. You need to hear what's going on in their heart. You need to pour into them. Women wake up and they don't just naturally say, I'm loved and I'm beautiful and I have what it takes. That's not what women think. And men don't wake up and think, I am so confident that I can just go to work and conquer the world. That's not how we wake up. We need people in our lives who pour respectful and loving words into us so that we are transformed into people who can be compassionate beyond. And that's a husband and a wife's job. We need to start with this compassion. You know, some of us have broken down, wounded people, and we're married to them. We don't need to look on the streets of Pottstown. We don't need to look for drug addicts or people who are damaged out there. We don't need to look for felons and people who are all these different things. We need to look for the people who have wounds that are maybe harder to see. And they might live in our own homes. And we might need to start close and listen and decide that we have to give of our hearts to the people. The people who irritate me the most in the world are all sharing my last name. It's true. And it's not their fault. I'm an irritated person. And I spend more time with them. You know, I got an ulcer three years ago, and we joked in our family. Shelby came up with this, not me. She said, are you going to name it Shelby? And I said, it's either Tim or it's Shelby. That's the ulcer's name. We have a name for this thing. We we easily shut down. Here's a great quote. we got to hurry. But here's a great quote. Catherine Wallace is a poet, and she just writes this line about listening to children. You who are parents or grandparents, listen to this. Listen earnestly to anything your children want to tell you, no matter what. 
If you don't listen eagerly to the little stuff when they're little, they won't tell you the big stuff when they're big because to them, all of it has always been big stuff. It's a great line, isn't it? She puts it into perspective. You knew that before you walked in, but we forget it. If you have kids, you get irritated. You go, man, that's crazy. I can't do that again today. Five-year-old kid asking the same question. Why, 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 right, right? Ugh. That's how it feels. And God says, let me pour a compassion into you. You hang out with me. I'm going to pour a compassion into you for that little five-year-old. And it needs to start there. It needs to start with your spouse, and it needs to start with your family. It goes beyond there, and we won't spend a lot of time because I think we do spend a lot of time on this generally. But compassion in our neighborhoods and workplaces requires an available heart ready to serve. It might be that you're actually going to see somebody who needs your attention and your focus this this week. It might be you're going to see a homeless person that needs you to help them find a place to live. It could be, and that's good. Listen, those people are part of in too, very possibly. It might be that you're going to live lives that are rubbing shoulders with people who are broken and Please do. Start close, but move out all the way. Go where God calls you to go and have a heart that's available wherever it is. Jesus said this line, and it's an important one. It's from Matthew chapter 25. It's about people who actually give of themselves to hungry folks and people who don't have clothes and people who are imprisoned. And the king will answer them. This is God at the last day answering people who don't think they've done that well. And he says, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of these, of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So if you literally see somebody who looks like that broken down Israelite on the way to Jericho, by all means, give of your heart to them. But also give of your heart all the way and develop a heart that is ready to be given. A heart that is ready to listen. A compassion that is sitting on the surface of your life and available to move beyond and do things in ways that, frankly, are difficult without the power of God. I want to close with a story. I've been reading a book, a guy by the name of Abraham Schmidt. He's a psychologist and a professor at the University of Pennsylvania years ago. And he tells a story, he's a Christian, and he tells a story about somebody when he's serving a psych ward, he had this woman come to him, and she was sent there by the courts, by the criminal justice system. She had committed a crime, and it was not a small crime. She had taken a pickaxe to her own mother. Uh, an ice pick, I guess it was. I said pickaxe. That's a whole different picture, isn't it? But an ice pick, and it's bad enough. And she got sent to jail, and the jail said, well, you are psychologically unbalanced, so we're going to send you to a psych ward. And this man, Abraham Schmidt, was tasked with providing her psychological counseling during this time. And he sat down with her as he sat down with all sorts of people because that's what happens with counselors. They sit down with all sorts of people who are broken. And he started to listen, and he said, i got to hear what's going on in your life. And she was really honest with him. She said, I was 15 years of age and I had such a bad home life and bad relationship with my mom who verbally abused me, all this different stuff, that I ran away with my 18-year-old boyfriend. We got married and had a kid. Well, then he found a girlfriend and he had a kid with her too and he stopped coming home. So at 21 or 22, I married again and I married another man. We had three kids. So now I've got four kids. And she said, and this man I started to realize was hurting my children and he was hurting them in really, really heinous ways. And I didn't know what to do, so I called the police. Well, the police came in, but they took my husband to jail, which is where he should have been. But then I didn't have a husband and then I didn't have an income. So I didn't know what to do. So I moved in with my mom again. But me and my mom, you know, she's, she's messed up. She's broken. 
And she says these things and it just kills me. I finally got some spiritual counsel about what to do with my mom. And the spiritual counselor said, listen, your mom is demon-possessed. You should take her out. So the only weapon I had was an ice pick. I tried. Can you imagine? And the psychologist who's from a Mennonite background in the country, he's in New York City, or rather the greater Philadelphia area, and he's, he's, he's there and he's listening to this story, and it's the most amazing thing. He says, you know, I realize psychologically that I, due to all my training, I have to admit that she acted in a rational way. This wasn't so unreasonable. As I listened to her, I thought, who would take an ice pick to their mom? And then you hear her story and say, well, that person would, and it's actually kind of a logical response. Not a right response, not a good response, but it's somewhat logical. They they shared the story with the whole ward, and the nurses and everybody got involved. They decided they wanted to do something for this woman, and the warden actually decided to pay with her own money for a Christmas party. They brought the four children in, and they set up this time where they got presents from the mom to the kids and from the kids to the mom. They set up this whole party, and it just started melting people's hearts. It not only transformed this woman's life, and she started on a new trajectory, ended up doing really well after this, by the way, but it started to change the climate of the, of the care facility itself. These people were used to working with broken people, and they had gotten closed heart syndrome, and this awakened their hearts because as they gave of themselves, even sometimes financially to this woman and her family, they awakened the thought that compassion could work, that it was transformative, that there is a change in the universe, and that God had always said this, but they had a hard time acting on it. Schmidt, at the end of the story, writes these words, challenging all of us, and I want to close with them. To really care is to discover life, but one must pay a price, he says. It takes courage to open oneself up to another's pain. It means bearing that pain with the other, and, the mean, and that means hurting just like the other person is hurting. To really care is to take a portion of the other's burden and carry it for him. It can be heavy just as it is for him. To care is to choose to do it when one doesn't really have to. The people in our lives are waiting for us to be Christ-like. And what it means to be Christ-like is to have a compassion that responds, to have a heart that's awakened. They're waiting for us to love before they ask for it. Don't love your spouse when they get angry at you. It's already too late. Love them before. Notice them, observe them, watch them, and find out how to fill the cracks in their soul. Don't wait for your kids to wonder why you don't care for them. Go out of your way. Don't let the world around you wonder where your heart is. Wear it on your sleeve. Take the risk. But do all that because you started by walking with Jesus and listening to his heart because it's only through that heart that you're going to be changed enough to have a heart that's going to serve the rest of this world. You're going to run out of heart quickly if you just go serve, right? You have to be transformed from above internally to go out. And that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in 20 minutes a day for me. It takes much, much longer and a much more committed way of living and focusing on Jesus. I'm going to pray and the praise team's going to come. If you need to leave, I know we're going a little bit late. We'll understand, but I'm going to close with a prayer and then the praise team will lead us.